What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this neat video I show you how my multi-million dollar dividend portfolio did in 2022, aka one of the worst years in S&P 500 history. So if you like videos like this, then please do me a favor and hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Okay, if you're new to my channel, then the quick TLDR is that I've been investing for about three decades, and I was able to retire a few years ago in my 40s once my dividend income was more than my expenses. Feel free to watch my other videos on my channel if you want to know about my background, what my perspective is on MLPs, BDCs, covered call ETFs, options, how it started dividend portfolio, etc. Now to level set, let's start by looking at some data on how 2022 stock market performed compared to the rest of history, and then I'll show you the details of my dividend portfolio in Fidelity, as well as in my spreadsheet tool which has info like how much my dividend income is per hour and how much it estimates it will grow over time and stuff like that. But first let's review some stock market data. This is a spreadsheet I made that shows the returns of the SP500 each year going back to 1928. I highlighted 2022 in gray, and we see that in that year the average closing price of the SP500 was 40.98. Then we see that on year open, aka on January 1st, the SP500 was 47.96. Then I list the highest point achieved in the year, and in this case we see that 47.96 was both what the SP500 was at on January 1st, as well as was the highest point the SP500 achieved for all of 2022. And then after year high is year low column, and for 2022 we see that 35.77 was the low. Then I list the year-end close, i.e. what the SP500 closed at on the last trading day in December, which for 2022 was 38.39. Then I list the percentage change of the SP500 for the year, i.e. the percent change from the year open to the year close, and in this case we see that in 2022 the SP500 fell almost 20%. And if we check that percentage against Google, we see that sure enough, the SP500 fell about 20% from January to December in 2022. Back to the spreadsheet, and next I list the percentage change from the high point in the year to the low point in the year, and in this case we see that there was a 34% delta from the highest peak to the lowest trough throughout 2022. That's a lot of volatility for one year. Okay, now I'll sort this spreadsheet based on the worst performing years in SP500 history, aka by the most negative open to close percentage change. Now we see that in 1931 was the worst performing year in history, with an almost 49% drop over the course of the year. The second worst year was 1937, where things fell 38%, then 2008 was the third worst year, then 1974, 1930, 2002, and then 2022, which means 2022 was the seventh worst year in SP500 history with an almost 20% drop. When I look at these worst years, I realize that I was in the markets in 2008, 2002, and 2022, thus I invested through three of the top seven worst years in history. But that only tells part of my story as I was overweight in tech during the dot-com years, so the 2000-2002 drop was when my portfolio lost even more than the SP500. That's my way of saying that if your portfolio imploded in 2022, then I can probably relate to how you feel right now, because I've been there, and hopefully you can take some solace in the fact that we went through an uncharacteristically tough year. The good news is that if you didn't quit, then congratulations, you've proven that you have the fortitude that it takes to succeed in the markets in the long run. The people who panic sell, in my experience, are the ones who eventually quit the market. The real winners tend to be the ones that get pushed back and then keep trudging forward. But I know you can feel crappy right now if you're down big, so believe me when I tell you that sometimes when you're in a dark place and you feel like you've been buried, what you don't realize is that you've actually been planted. Your financial tree will sprout and grow more and more if you don't quit. Okay, now let's sort the spreadsheet based on the best performing years in history. Now we can see that in 1933, the SP500 gained almost 
So we saw that 1931 was the worst year, and then shortly afterwards in 1933 was the best year, and that pattern of really low turning into really high kind of makes sense. Like people overreact to something and things crash hard, and then people realize that they overreacted so things come storming back, potentially an overreaction again. After 1933, we see that the second best year was 1954, when the SP500 gained around 44% for the year. When I look at these best years in history, I find that I've invested in three of them, specifically 1995, 1997, and 2021. So I've invested through three of the really bad times and three of the really good times in US stock market history. My guess is that the longer you invest, the more you'll find yourself in similar situations, i.e. some really bad years, some really good years, and probably your good will outshine your bad, assuming the markets keep trending up over time, which I'm guessing they will. Of course, remember if you have a 50% drop one year, then you'll need 100% to get back to where you were. Okay, now let's jump into my brokerage account on Fidelity, so we can see how my dividend portfolio did in 2022 versus the 20% that the SP500 lost. So here's a screenshot I took of my accounts after market close on January 3rd of 2023. I blocked out my account numbers as well as the custodial account section, as that's officially kids' money, not mine. Speaking of kids' accounts, it's good to be aware that the new Secure Act 2.0 that just passed Congress made it so that starting in 2024, you'll be able to roll over up to $35,000 from a 529 plan into a Roth IRA, assuming you had opened the 529 account at least 15 years ago. My kids have UTMA accounts and not 529s, but I thought that was a cool enough change to mention it. Okay, so I have three dividend accounts in Fidelity, and as you can see, they add up to about 2.74 million US dollars. My IRA has about 1.17 million worth of stocks in it. It's a traditional IRA because Roths didn't exist when I started investing, and I made the mistake of not moving into one when I found out about them. A common question I get is how did I build a retirement account to over a million, since there are limits to how much you can contribute each year. Well, the answer is it's primarily from compounding for decades. Small amounts grow to large amounts if you just let them do their thing. Plus, when I'd leave jobs, I'd roll over my 401ks into my IRA so I could control it, and 401ks have higher annual contribution limits, plus often have company matches, and I think I always at least got my company match. Okay, and then below my IRA is my taxable account, where I have around $1.39 million of stocks. And finally, I have $181,000 of stocks in a retirement rollover account for my wife that I manage. My wife's hourly jobs over the years often didn't have 401ks, and I made the mistake of not focusing on building her retirement account that much as the years went on. The markets are red when I took this screenshot, and you can see that the IRA and the taxable are down, whereas the rollover is up. I'll be showing you my stocks in each account in a moment, but first let's take a look at the performance of my portfolio compared to the SP500. So this Fidelity screenshot shows prior month end performance as of December 31st, 2022, which I think means this is one month behind, aka it's up to early December. I actually called Fidelity Customer Service and asked them when the December numbers would be reflected in this page, and they said they weren't sure. Anyways, Fidelity uses time-weighted returns when showing return percentages. Time-weighted return is considered a true representation of the performance of an investor's portfolio because it only reflects the impact of the market and your investment selections. So time-weighted return takes deposits and withdrawals out of the equation when evaluating your portfolio performance. The other way to measure portfolio performance is called money-weighted return, which measures the compound growth rate and the value of all funds invested in the account over the evaluation period. Thus, your returns can get skewed based on the amount of cash you have flowing in and out, which is why Fidelity is using the classic time-weighted method instead. Note, I moved from E-Trade to Fidelity about two years ago, which is why this screen doesn't show any three-plus year returns. And when you transfer brokers, they sell all your fractional shares, which is why the only stocks of mine that do have fractional shares are ones I purchased or added to while at Fidelity. 
I used to drip everything in any trade, but once my dividend income got more than my expenses, I turned off the drips and started using dividends to pay all my bills, which you can hear about in a video I did called Huge News About My Dividend Portfolio, which I released in 2020. Anyways, let's ignore the one month and three months performance data here, and instead look at the next two columns which are year to date and one year, which are actually the same amounts because this is counting year to date as from January 2022 to December 2022, not 2023. And with that out of the way, what we see is that the rollover account is up 1.76% for 2022, the taxable is up 6.32%, the IRA is down 5.4%, and overall I was up 0.72% across all my accounts, so I was basically flat. But that easily outperforms the SP500, which this says was down 18.11% over the last year. But like I said, it's slightly off because this is missing some December data, and I know that the SP500 was down about 20% in 2022. Now, one-year performance is kind of meaningless, but it's still good to be aware of. What I mean is that I wouldn't get too excited or too annoyed based on your one-year performance. Things get more useful when you're looking at longer time frames, like five years or more. So why did my portfolio beat out the SP500 in 2022? Well, I hold a lot of conservative dividend stocks that people often flock to when times are tough, helping me to basically go sideways as the market fell around 20%. I'm actually surprised that I held up that well, as I still tend to go down when things go down. I'll show you my portfolio beta in my spreadsheet in a moment, but it's at a low 0.76, so it's logical to conclude that I should lose less in down markets, but also should gain less in up markets over long periods of time. Now, it really wouldn't matter to me personally whether I ended down 20% or up 20% or whatever, as I don't plan to sell, and not stressing about portfolio fluctuations is another reason why I prefer dividend investing. Okay, now let's look at my dividends starting with my taxable account. This is what Fidelity calls its dividend view, and it's sorted things by ticker, and I hold 19 tickers in my taxable, and I have 27 distinct tickers across all my accounts, and you'll see that I hold many of the same stocks in multiple accounts. I'll just go over this quickly so you can get a flavor of things, and then I'll show you a better view of my portfolio in my spreadsheet, which will add up all my shares across my three accounts. The first ticker listed is SPACs, which is a Fidelity money market account where my spare cash is stored, and you can see there's only like 7 cents in there. Next up is my first stock in my tax bill, which is Apple. I have 408 shares of Apple in this account, worth 51k, and we see that it has a tiny yield of 0.71% and that it is 3.67% of this account, and it yields $375 of dividends a year. Then I have 416 shares of AbbVie, worth 67k, yielding $2,462 of dividends. Then I have 2,379.6 shares of British American Tobacco, worth 96k, which yields $6,702 a year in dividends. That's actually $500 too high of an income estimate for BTI because Fidelity isn't dynamically updating the income estimates based on currency fluctuations, which I actually do in my personal spreadsheet. Okay, then I have 32k of Colgate Palmolive, 81k of Chevron, 68k of Duke Energy, and a dividend investor's favorite in Johnson & Johnson, where I have 119 grand worth in this account, and it yields $3,019 of dividends a year. Then I have 31k of Kimberly Clark, 54k of Coke, and then scrolling down I have 14k of Leggett & Platt, 42k of McDonald's, 128k of Altria, 89k of Microsoft, 80k of Pepsi, 47k of Procter & Gamble, 128k of Philip Morris, 89k of SCHD, which is a dividend ETF, 32k of Southern Company, and 138k of ExxonMobil, which adds up to 1.39 million bucks and which yields about 54 grand of qualified dividends a year. Okay, now let's look at my IRA account. So first is that SPAC's cash account, which is pretty much empty. Then we see 166k of Apple stock, then 40k of AbbVie, 7k of BTI, 49k of Caterpillar, 20k of Colgate Palmolive, 32k of Chevron, 43k of Duke Energy, 
61k of Goldman Sachs, and 41k of Johnson & Johnson. Then scrolling down we see 45k of Kimberly Clark, 51k of Coke, 18k of Leggett & Platt, 66k of McDonald's, 20k of Altria, 99k of Microsoft, 117k of Realty Income, 57k of Pepsi, 26k of Pfizer, 70k of Procter & Gamble, 31k of Starbucks, 48k of Southern Company, and 63k of ExxonMobil for a total of 1.17 mil yielding $32,500 of dividends. Okay, now let's take a look at the rollover retirement account. After SPACs, we see 43k of AbbVie, then 1300 bucks of BTI, 31k of Home Depot, 12k of J&J, 19k of MO, 45k of O, and 29k of Travelers for a total of 181k of stocks yielding 7 grand. So overall, my portfolio is yielding a little over $92,000 of dividends a year. Now let's jump into my dividend portfolio spreadsheet tool so we can see some other interesting data points. As most of you know, my spreadsheet is something that is one of the monthly benefits I give to my Patreon aristocrats and kings, i.e. the people whose names are scrolling on my video. Okay, this is sorted based on market value, so the biggest positions are on top. The first column are the tickers, and the color of the ticker automatically updates based on the stock's payday. So if it's highlighted in green, that means it's paying today. If it's a cyan color, that means it's paying out within a week. And if it's highlighted in yellow, it means it's paying out within a month. If there's no highlight, it means the payout is over a month away. I do this color coding to provide me an at-a-glance way to quickly see what's paying out and what's about to pay, which I find useful as someone who lives on dividends to pay all my bills. Now, Apple is highlighted in cyan, but I believe that's a data bug that actually is all over the internet. I tweeted about it a couple weeks ago. I found that a bunch of websites are saying that Apple's next dividend is 16.75 cents per share instead of the normal 23 cents a share, and it's payable on January 9th rather than the normal payout, which would be in February. My guess is that some main data source that a lot of financial websites use made a mistake, and that got propagated out to a bunch of places, but it's also possible that Apple is paying a special dividend, or it's even possible it's a cut. I think it's just a mistake since I couldn't find that reflected on Apple's own investor relations site, but it's interesting nonetheless. Anyways, other than that, you can see that Altria, Pepsi, and Kimberly Clark are all cyan, which means they're paying me within the week. And then Realty Income, Philip Morris, and Leggett and Platt are all yellow, meaning they're paying me within the month. And you can see I have 1,738 shares of Apple across all my accounts, which is 7.93% of my overall portfolio, and which is worth 217 grand, and which pays out $1,598 a year in divvies. Then you see pricing information, which updates automatically throughout the trading day. So like Apple closed at $125.33 a share, which means it lost $4.61 that day, which is a 3.54% drop for it, and so that also means that position dropped about eight grand in value. Then we have the market value, so you can see that I have about 217 grand of Apple. Then we have Exadate followed by Paydate, which has the same color scheme that I previously talked about, and then dividends paid out per pay period, where a pay period is usually every quarter, so we can see that Apple pays me about $400 each time it pays out quarterly, which means it pays out about $1,600 a year. Or if you look at Realty Income Ticker O, which is down a few more rows, you can see it pays out $630 a pay period, which is monthly. I've been pushing a lot more into O lately, as I think the price is reasonable. Not cheap, not expensive, but I feel fine to DCA into it. Then the next column over is Current Dividend Yield, which for Apple is a very low 0.73%, and then after that is its 3-year dividend CAGR, which is at 8.45%. Another question I'm often asked is why I don't go with higher yielding stocks than Apple and Microsoft, and the quick answer is that my dividend income is good enough as it is to cover my bills, even having low yield stuff, so this way I can have some stocks that tend to appreciate more in the long run, all of which rounds out my portfolio like I like it. Thus, I don't have to sacrifice portfolio growth potential in the name of yield. 
Okay, I won't go over each individual stock, but feel free to screenshot this if you want to dive into more details. Okay, and on the bottom of the spreadsheet shows that my portfolio's average weighted current yield is about 3.36%, and my portfolio's average weighted three-year dividend category is 7.29%. Then if I scroll to the right a bit, we see PEs for each stock, and we see that the portfolio's average weighted PE is 22. And given that 15 is the historical average, I'd say the market as a whole is still expensive overall. Then you see a column of graphs of how each stock has trended over the last year, and you can easily tell based on the color if the stock is up or down from where it was a year ago. Then we have the sector that each stock is in, followed by each ticker's beta. So you can see that the portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.76. My low beta portfolio fits my investing personality and my goals and risk tolerances and such. And it's okay if you hold higher beta stuff. Just understand the pros, cons, risks, etc. I'm pretty laid back and I'm not someone who's hyper-focused about beating market returns. I'm happy to just roughly be in line. My goal is to just keep acquiring great businesses. And I'm confident if I keep doing that, then everything else will fall into place in the long run. Now, the easiest way to do well in the market is just to invest in inexpensive broad market ETFs like VTI or VU or SPY or whatever. I prefer single stocks, but regardless of what you do, a key point is to stay invested and keep investing for long periods of time in a diverse portfolio. Anyways, going to the right a bit more is a calendar view of dividend payouts. The left side of the calendar is the last six months of dividends you got, and then the right side of the calendar are the estimates of future dividend payouts per month. And on the bottom are the monthly dividend totals. The current month is highlighted in green, which in this case is January of 2023, and I should be paid $8,082 in dividends. Then in February I'll get $5,127, and then in March I'll get paid $9,845, and then those three quarterly amounts repeat month over month. Then this fund data represents estimates of how my dividend income will trend year over year based on if I don't have a drip on, which is the top line, or if I'm reinvesting dividends with the drip, then it's the bottom line. So you can see in the current year, I'm at about $92,000 of dividend income. And then if dividend CAGRs hold, then a year from now, I'll be at about $99,000 without dripping or at $102,000 a year if I'm reinvesting. I'm currently partially reinvesting, so I'll probably end up between those two points. Then two years from now, I'll be at 106 k without the drip or 113 k with the drip. And that estimate keeps going on for the next 30 years. Theoretically, I'd be making 762 grand 30 years from now if I wasn't reinvesting dividends and without considering inflation or taxes, or I'd be at an even more insane $1.85 million a year in dividends if I was dripping. Can you imagine? That's the power of the dividend snowball. But let's get conservative and pretend things grow at half that amount and says 30 years from now I'd only be making 350 grand a year. I say only in air quotes to make the point about how powerful dividend snowballs can be. Then here's a graph that shows my no-drip dividend income estimates in blue versus a drip in red. So obviously the red line goes up faster, but even not dripping and spending your dividends still grows your income. And a feature I just added to the spreadsheet are input fields for inflation and taxes, so you can model how that impacts your year-over-year -year dividend income growth estimates if you want. Anyways, I also have this chart that estimates that I'll average about $7,700 each month in dividends, which is $1,773 a week, or $252 a day, or $10.53 an hour, every hour, year-round. So if I go to sleep for 7 hours and wake up, then I'll have made another 70-ish bucks. But it's actually more than that if you're trying to convert a pure hourly dividend income number into an hourly wage number, since wages tend to take more out in taxes, and because you tend to work only about 20-25% to of the total possible hours that exist. Thus, it's kind of like saying I'm making 59 bucks an hour if I had a job. Then again, it would actually be less than that since a portion of my dividends are in retirement accounts, which would get taxed and penalized if withdrawn early. Whatever it is, you can't beat true passive dividend income. Okay, here's a graph that is dynamically created that shows my portfolio value by sector. 
So you can see how tech is my biggest sector at 14.8% of my portfolio, though that used to be over 17% before tech got hammered so hard in 2022. You can see energy is 11.5%, healthcare is 12.7%, sin stocks are 14.6%, etc. And then this is a passive income percentage by ticker graph, and you can see Altria is the big boy at 15%, and some other larger ones are Realty Income at 8.2%, AbV at 6%, ExxonMobil at 7.5%, etc. If I was young, then I'd not have any sin stocks, as I don't think there'll be too much stock appreciation over time, but being retired, I'm cool with it. There are a bunch of other useful tools and graphs in my spreadsheet product, but that gives you a flavor of things. Man, I really love dividend investing. I love to keep acquiring more cash flowing shares that give me value now rather than maybe value in the future, and I look at each share as another cash tree I'm planting on my farm. I don't sell my farm if Zillow estimates that it's not as valuable as before, aka I don't sell my dividend stocks just because their prices might have trended down a bit. I can focus on how much cash my crops from my farm are yielding. And in this case, I withdrew over $50,000 of qualified dividends from my taxable account to pay my bills in 2022, and I reinvested the rest. A nice thing about the tax code is that I can make slightly over $109,000 a year in qualified dividends in a taxable account as a married couple, and owe $0 in federal income taxes. But if we made $109,000 from jobs as a married couple, then we would owe almost $10,000 in federal income taxes. That's another huge power of dividends, which is that the tax code is optimized for investors. Thus, that's why I say that most dividend dollars are more powerful than wage dollars due to the nice tax implications. Now, why are taxes so nice for most investments? Well, the tax code is written to influence people to invest, and the guys who make these laws are usually investors themselves, so they often want to make the system work for them. You can hate the game, but you better learn the rules. Anyways, if you have wage income plus dividend income in a taxable account, then you'll probably owe some taxes due to your extra dividend income, unless you're holding your dividend stocks in retirement accounts. One thing I found is that having a good sized portfolio leaves me comfortable to having a smaller emergency fund as I can always sell some stocks for cash if needed. Or something else easy is to take early cash distributions from my retirement account, though I'd have to pay the penalty fee since I'm under 59 and a half years old. Of course, I still like holding a few months of emergency cash in my bank accounts. Anyways, the lessons you learn from being in the market and not quitting is what can make you financially strong in the long run. The biggest thing stopping you from success is if you quit, or if you refuse to keep learning, or if you refuse to change your bad habits. The people who fail tend to be the ones that always take the path of least resistance. They're the people who try the easier, fast way to get rich. But nothing worthwhile in life can be achieved easily or quickly. It reminds me of how every so often I'll get comments like, I can't wait 40 years to become rich. Dividend investing is just too slow. And I shake my head knowing that those very same people will probably regret it if they don't invest intelligently in their rush to get rich quick. Take a look at this compound interest calculator that shows if you invest $200 a month for 40 years at 10%, you'll end at over a million bucks. And sure, a million in 40 years is less than a million today, but it will still be a lot. I mean, let's pretend that inflation eats away at 3.8% of your buying power each year, which is what we have averaged over the last 60 years in the US, and which includes time frames of higher inflation than we have right now. So if we look at that same calculation, but now put in 6.2% return instead of a 10% return, we end up at about 390 grand. Or to say that differently, investing $200 a month for the next 40 years with a 10% annualized return along with 3.8% annualized inflation rate would end us at a spot which is equivalent to us having around 390 grand today. So yeah, it's not a million dollars, but slowly building up a portfolio that would be worth almost 400 grand in today's money is still great. The key is consistency over long periods of time. And sure, the SP500 might not average 10% for the next few decades, but regardless, over the long run, having something invested is better than having nothing invested. So my message to you is to invest. Will 2023 be a crappy year? No one knows, though many experts predict yes. 
I also have no idea, but if you made me guess, then I'd assume things go down, as most things point to a worldwide recession getting bad, but I don't sell, nor do I freak out. I just keep holding and slowly acquiring decent stuff at decent prices, and let the world do its thing. Okay, I hope you enjoyed all that, and now I'd like to shout out my newest Patreon aristocrats who have signed up since my last video. So thank yous go out to TMN, BTC Gibby, Caroline A, Josh, and Mugiwara Luffy. I'd also like to thank Sarugaki, who signed up for an entire year, so they get a 10% discount. And I'd like to thank Cromag, who was a king but upgraded by signing up for an entire year to get the 10% discount. Thanks, dude, I really appreciate it. Aristocrats gain access to my dividend portfolio tracker spreadsheet, which I'll use in lots of my videos, and they get special access to various private channels on my Discord, including one which lets you watch my videos before I release them publicly on YouTube, as well as lets you vote on which thumbnails I should use, and of course you get more direct access to me. They also get a shout-out, as you've heard, and I add them to my scrolling news ticker on my videos. Kings get everything aristocrats get, plus we do a monthly 30-minute private voice chat to talk about whatever you want, but I'm sold out on Kings right now. Finally, I urge everyone to join my free dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of dividend investors on it from around the world. Regardless of what you do, please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click the bell notification. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.